I'm very grateful for the men the Lord has blessed our congregation with. Uh, Terry Moody will be bringing the word this morning, and I know that you've been blessed by Drew Sutphin as well. I do appreciate the deep bench this church, this congregation has. Brother? If you will, please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 and 6. We'll begin reading in uh, chapter 5, verse 7, ending in chapter 6, verse 12. So I'm going to read this scripture, then we'll have a brief word of prayer. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. But though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own arm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Let's bow our heads. 
Lord, many of us come here this morning with heavy hearts, and our attention is divided. We have worries and concerns, but I pray that you will help us to entrust those concerns to your loving hand and to your, to your sovereignty, and that for a moment we might give you the attention that you deserve, that you might help me to teach accurately and in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might open the ears of those who are here with us today, the truth might penetrate their mind and even their hearts, and it might affect the change that you desire in us. Be with us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a lot going on here, and this, this is heavy, heavy fuel. And I'm not going to dissect every verse here, but we're going to do a flyover. And we're going to try to keep the main thing the main thing. The book of Hebrews was a letter written to a church in a time of crisis. And this church was no stranger to suffering. In the 10th chapter of this book, the author acknowledges the struggles that they have had. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some had had their property confiscated, while others had been locked up in prison. Chapter 10, verses 34 and 35 says, There was a time when they accepted this mistreatment and this persecution with an attitude of joy because they were willing to give up their earthly possessions in exchange for a better eternal possession. But something, something had changed since then. Some had caved into the pressure. Some had even defected from the group. And the writer exhorts them not to forsake meeting together. Some had lost confidence in the gospel message altogether. The writer implies that they were no longer listening. They were not making progress. They were regressing. So he reminds them that Christ has set an example for us all to follow. Jesus lived in complete subjection and obedience to God, even to the point of death. And if God's Son was not exempt from suffering, why do we believe that we ought to be exempt from suffering? And he wants to explain to them the high priesthood of Christ, but in verse 11 of chapter 5, you will see that he pauses. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It is hard to explain. Now, it's not hard to explain because uh, the writer is not competent to explain the doctrines of Christ. His competency is not the problem. And the subject is not the problem. The problem was with the audience. They had become dull of hearing. They had become difficult to teach. Verse 11 implies that they had not always been dull of hearing. They had become that way. It was a process, and it was gradual. In verses 12 through 14, 
He rebukes uh, their spiritual state. They ought to be teachers, but they need someone to teach them again. And the rebuke becomes sharper as the, the author here uses sarcasm against them. They were like infants or babies who could not eat solid food. They needed milk like a child. They were unskilled in the word. An infant doesn't know what is right or wrong. An infant is not skilled in reasoning. An infant lacks a moral standard and an infant has no discernment. Infants are not capable of speaking correctly. They are not prepared to defend the truth or engage others. Solid food is not just for seminary students, for pastors, elders, or deacons. Solid food is for all Christians. We all need to grow in our understanding and in our obedience so that we become mature believers. You know, many believers cannot uh, distinguish the difference between someone like John MacArthur's preaching from someone like Joel Osteen's preaching, and that is sad. They lack discernment, and they are immature. But we gain wisdom, and we gain discernment by studying and by putting our faith into practice. Now, not every believer is called to be a teacher. God doesn't give all of us the same gifts and abilities. But every believer has a duty to teach at some level. A husband needs a certain level of knowledge and discernment to protect his wife and his family to comfort his wife when she is troubled. He needs biblical wisdom to resolve conflict in the home. The husband and the wife need enough wisdom and knowledge to disciple their children. Older men need to have enough biblical knowledge and wisdom to provide an example of Christian maturity to the younger men in the church. And the same is true for the women, both men, women, and older children should be able to explain the gospel to an unbeliever. I've heard some people say that all they need to know is Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. But that is ridiculous. And I'm thankful that Jesus loves me, but I need to know a little bit more than that. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. It is not that we are to leave the basic teachings behind, but rather we should have a firm grasp on those basic teachings so that we can have a foundation that we can build upon. We have catechisms, we have creeds to help us learn the basics of the Christian faith. The early church also used creeds for instructing new believers. The writer mentions some of the basic teachings about repentance and faith, about washing, about laying on of hands, about the resurrection and eternal judgment. The church uh, that he was writing to was composed of Jewish believers. More than likely, 
they had received basic instruction about Christ, the salvation he offers, while helping them also to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Covenant fulfillment. Arthur Pink makes a convincing argument that the elementary doctrines refer to the shadows and the types of the Old Testament as opposed to the substance of the New Testament. In other words, he believes that uh, this group of Hebrews, this Hebrew church, had not yet understood that uh, Judaism uh, was a temporary economy. The sacrifices, the rituals, the ceremonies, the holy days were temporary because they found fulfillment in Christ. Uh, so Calvin and Owen may take a little bit different position on that, but nonetheless, they have become slothful. They were no longer content to have nothing while here on earth. They had become impatient, waiting on future and unseen inheritance. They needed to grow up spiritually. They needed to move on from their state of immaturity to maturity. And having said that, there can be no spiritual progress apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And he acknowledges this in verse 3 when he says, And this we will do if God permits. The immature are tossed about by the waves. They get excited and they reach emotional highs and they sink down to emotional lows. Uh, this is part of the problem with revivalism. Uh, there's too much of an appeal uh, to emotions. You know, there's a danger when men uh, try to convince an audience to trust Christ without relying on the Holy Spirit's work. When they play the music to work up the emotions, uh, when they put psychological pressure on sinners to trust Christ, and the sinners make a, a, quote, decision for Christ, and he is baptized, and they admit them to the church. And this is a recipe for false conversions. There was once a stumbling drunk on the street who approached the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And the drunkard slurred, Mr. Moody, I am one of your converts. To which Mr. Moody replied, You must be, because you are certainly not one of the Lord's. Emotional decisions are sometimes mistaken for the true conversions brought about by the Holy Spirit. Now, catechisms, biblical instruction, they guard the church from false conversions, but they do not do it perfectly. The Reformed Church has recognized that the visible church is made up of true Christians and also professing Christians. Augustine referred to the visible church as a mixed body, a visible people. But this assembly has both tares and wheat, as described by Jesus. Our confession, the Westminster Confession, speaks of the invisible church 
as distinct from the visible church. The invisible church consists of the whole number of God's elect. God alone knows the invisible church. No one can see into the heart of another. That is why we accept members into the church based on a credible profession. We become members of the visible church by outwardly obeying the call of the gospel and professing our belief and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We submit to baptism and partake of the Lord's Supper. And we place ourselves under the authority of the preaching of the word and the authority of the local church. We do not identify with the world. We identify with the people of God. If we look at verses 4 through 6, these verses have confused a lot of people. Many sincere believers believe that a Christian can lose his or her salvation because they misinterpret verses like these. In verse 4, for it, it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. If you read commentaries on the book of Hebrews, they do not all agree as to who is being addressed here. Is it meant for true believers? Can a believer lose his salvation? Or is it meant for false professors? Well, it is my view that he's addressing the visible church, which consists of true believers and false professors. He is writing to the baptized, to those who profess to believe in Christ. Do church members commit apostasy? Of course. But do truly regenerate believers commit apostasy? Absolutely not. Matthew 10, 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Bible clearly teaches that those who belong to Christ Jesus will never be separated from him. They are saved forever. They have assurance. The Bible is also clear that this thing we call apostasy is a real danger. So how do you reconcile those two truths? Apostasy happens within the visible church. How else would you find out about it? No one would know. But we learn about apostasy when a fellow church member goes missing in action and no longer lives for the Lord and never returns. These church members had religious experiences. They learned things. They saw things. 
They may have even been moved by what they heard. They tasted, but they never drank. They received no nourishment. They showed some enthusiasm, but somehow it had lost its appeal. Their presence in the visible church was temporary. They did not persevere. Their leaving was evidence of the shallowness of their profession. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Apostasy is a word that describes a person who once identified himself as a Christian, but now has abandoned the Lord. And we remember that both Judas and Peter denied Christ, but Peter came back to the Lord while Judas did not. Peter truly belonged to the Lord while Judas did not. Peter did not live up to his calling, but Judas secretly despised the truth. Now, there are many people who have a morbid view of themselves, and they are very introspective, and, and they read verses like this, and they become fearful, and they're afraid that they have fallen away, that they have committed the unpardonable sin, that they cannot be brought back to true repentance. But let me just say, if that bothers you, that is a good indication that you have not committed apostasy, that you have not fallen away beyond hope. If you long for the Lord, but you despise your sin, and you keep struggling with sin, that is not apostasy. The author is not speaking of those who stumble. We all stumble. The Lord always accepts the penitent. He is speaking about those who have hard hearts. And that hardness has blocked the way to the cross. And their course has become irreversible backsliding, so we, so to speak, is different from apostasy. But at the beginning, they both look the same. And we see here an illustration that is similar to the Lord's parable of the sower that gives us a few things to look for. In verse 7, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
Those who commit apostasy do not bear fruit, although they may appear to and they may be very convincing for a time. But true believers always bear fruit. Now, true believers can do terrible things. And it may take some time to see the results. But if you belong to Christ, you will bear fruit. Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we need to look for some fruit. We need to look for spiritual fruit instead of experiences. We also need to look for the absence of spiritual fruit. Those who do not bear fruit bear thorns. Thorns represent the works of the flesh, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The presence of thorns and thistles indicate that the soil is bad. The rain falls on it, but the land does not drink it in. It tastes, but it does not drink. And he is speaking of the heart and its fallen condition. And Jesus told a parable where the sower sows the seed, which is the word, but Satan comes and steals it. Some receive the word with joy, but when persecution comes, they fall away. Others hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the, des the desire for other things choke out the word. The third thing we need to look for is a failure to show diligence and a tendency to become sluggish. In verse 12, he exhorts us to imitate those who inherit the promise. And he warns us of sluggishness or dullness. Strong language was used to rebuke this church. Sarcasm was used to shame them to repentance. Covenantal language was used because it was written to the church. The rain becomes a blessing to the land that is drunk it, but the land that failed to receive the blessing is cursed. But even though he used such strong language, he is confident about the salvation of his readers. There was a time when their commitment to Christ and to each other was so strong that it served as a good indicator of true spiritual life. The pastor Richard Phillips says the Christian life takes place within the context of grave danger. Here in America, we may have some unfamiliarity with that, but it's getting closer. That is why the New Testament speaks of assurance but never allows for sloth or complacency. 
When we identify ourselves with Christ, we also embrace the stigma that comes with that. Now, when I say stigma, speaking of a a set of unfair beliefs that society has about someone or something, or a mark of disgrace. In society, Christians bear a mark of disgrace because we're not looked upon with favor. At one time, this congregation identified herself with the stigma attached to the name of Jesus. And they had publicly demonstrated their love for him. Are we aggressively pursuing the promise? Or have we become dull and sluggish? The church is no place to play games with God. This is the place where we are enlightened. We taste the heavenly gift and we share in the Holy Spirit. So we must not fall away. We ask ourselves some questions. Do we understand the truth well enough to help others? Are we bearing any fruit that is useful to God? You've heard it said, maybe mockingly, if you were charged with the crime of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Are we willing to identify ourselves with Christ publicly in the midst of a world that rejects and scorns him? Or have we become hard to teach because we are dull of hearing? It is a dangerous thing to be dull spiritually. And we need to imitate those who inherit the promise. And then many grow up in the church. They are baptized. And they seem to believe the gospel, at least on an intellectual level. They partake of the Lord's Supper. They taste the heavenly gift. They hear the preaching and they taste the goodness of the word. They see lives being changed and people being saved and they taste the powers of the age to come, but they are never gripped by it. They desire other things more. They hear the word, but they do not obey. Becoming dull and growing harder and harder, and then they fall away. Holding the Lord in contempt, rejecting the only one that can save them, becoming guilty of crucifying the Lord over again. After coming to a full knowledge of the gospel and rejecting it, they could not be renewed again to repentance. Now, this is scary stuff, isn't it? 
After coming to a full knowledge of the gospel and rejecting it, they could not be renewed again to repentance. Now, we're all thinking, aren't we? I wonder about so-and-so. We, we all do this, but we can't read hearts. We don't know if someone is backslidden. We don't know if someone has become apostate and crossed the the line to the point of no return. We do not know. We must also allow room for the sovereignty of God. That even though there's nothing we can do to help these people, God can. But having said that, I don't want to take away or minimize the warning here. It's a very dangerous thing to become dull of hearing. Is it backsliding or is it apostasy? They look the same in the beginning. So let us not become dull of hearing. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, our Father, Thank you for your word. I pray that it may penetrate, that hard hearts may become soft, that those who do not yet believe may believe, that we may embrace your son and bow our knee to him, that we may identify with him and even bear his reproach, taking that stigma of our association with him upon ourselves facing the rejection of the world. Being willing to lose temporary possessions because we know we have a greater possession. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.